Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said, then bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid them, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep, dark sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites. And the Jebusites. This is God's word. You can sit down now. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, this is very obvious to us, a very important text. You will repeat this to us again and again and again throughout the rest of the Bible. And so we approach this text with humility, knowing that you have something rich here for us. So would you reveal that to us, Lord, and give us understanding? I'm asking you, Lord, to keep your promise to us that the Spirit would help us understand these things. So help us understand these things. Make Christ glorified in your word. And give us faith. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are about to study what is, well, we've begun already. We've begun to study already what is debatably the single most important conversation in the history of the world, which is a big statement, isn't it? No doubt there, there have been conversations between the Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundation of the world that were more important than this. But as far as a conversation between a human and God, Genesis 15 has got to be really high up there. And so far, this is actually the first conversation between a human and God. And I, and I say that because aside, I say that aside from the, the judgment scene uh, where, where God calls Adam and Eve to answer for their sin, and then later when, when God warns Cain and then, and then punishes Cain and Cain complains, this is too much for me. This is the first, like, friendly conversation between God and man. We haven't seen anything like this. Genesis 15 is unique in this regard. We're going to see here 
for the first time how it is that, that the God of creation, what we've seen so far is this big, powerful, creating God. We're going to see for the first time how this God receives the questions and the doubts of his people as, as, we, as we see what's going on in Abram's heart. And this is also the first time that we will see God manifest himself as what is here in 15 verse 1, uh, the word of the Lord. You notice that in our reading that there isn't a description of what the Lord looks like here. Right? It's just the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What does he look like? The Bible doesn't tell us. That's intentional. This, this is instructive. The emphasis, as it has been throughout Genesis and will be throughout the Bible, the emphasis is on the authority and the power of God's voice. God's word is so substantial, and I mean that in the literal sense, so substantive, that it is a he. Through the word of God, as we just sang, through the word of God, creation is formed. Through the word of God, faith is born in Abraham and righteousness through faith. We can't say that about our words, can we? My words cannot be described the way that God's can. My words, some of you are already asleep. (laughs) My words can't even keep you awake on a rainy morning, but God's word... Coming from his very being, God's word coming from his being is, in essence, God, essentially God. The word is the very substance and the very power and the very being of God. In the Old Testament, the the reason that God often manifests himself as the word, as we're seeing here for the first time, is because you can't make a statue out of a word. You can't make an image out of a word and bow down to it, can you? God wants his people to trust his voice more than they trust their eyes. The voice of God speaks of things not yet seen. The eyes have to settle on what currently is. The word points to the hope. The word always points to the hope of the coming Christ. And so the word comes to Abram here. To point him in us to the coming Christ. In fact, we could say... That that hope in the unseen, that reliance on the voice of God, the word of God, that hope in the unseen promise is the theme of the story of Abraham. If you were to just read the story of Abraham in one sitting, you would see this repeated. You, you know how in some movies there's, like a, there's an orchestral theme for certain characters? Like hobbits. And that, that same music repeats their story in happy moments and in scary moments and in sad moments. And, and, and even though the, the, the music surrounding that theme may be different, the, the notes are the same, the progression of those chords is the same. Well, whenever you see Abraham in the Bible, that, there's a theme song for Abraham, and that song is on repeat for us again and again and again. And it reminds us, oh, this is that guy. This is the guy being asked to trust in God's promises, even though he cannot see God's promises. That's Abraham's theme. So as we've seen the creating power of God's word so far in Genesis, but created by the power of his word, what's happening with Abraham's story is we're merging that major creating, that world-making theme with the power of God's word to create faith in Abraham. God's word, what we'll see this morning, God's word will encourage Abraham. God's word will give him assurance. God's word will give him a reason to keep hoping in these unseen promises. So that through Abram, the blessing of the Christ will come to us. This is God's eternal plan. So let's get into it. Verse 1. After these things. Stop right there. What things? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. What things is verse 1 talking about? What does Moses mean here? Well, Moses is telling us here that chapter 15 is chronologically linked to chapter 14. So if you missed last week's sermon, sorry, you're going to have to go back and listen to it. You can't just understand this one. But I'll give you some clues. The impact uh, uh, of that very important tithe, that tenth of all his, 
of all the, 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 the spoils of war that Abram gave to the king of Salem. And then that insulting rejection that Abram gave to the king of Sodom. The effects of those events, those things are still lingering here in chapter 15. The tithe that Abram gave, he described for us as an oath sworn to the Lord. Abram swore allegiance to the Lord as his king. And because Abram swore that the Lord would be his master and king, he had to deny any allegiance to an earthly king, particularly the king of Sodom. And that denial of honor to the king of Sodom is why Abram has a real reason to be afraid here. Not to mention the fact that Abram has just come out of battle against the most feared armies in the known world. And he's defeated them. And they're not likely to let that go. That was humiliating to them. They were defeated by a man without a country. So there's a high likelihood that Ketolaomer from, from chapter 14 and his crew may have a, a lingering uh, vengeance desire against Abram. They have it out for him as well. So in response to those things, the Lord sees here in 15 verse 1. Keep your Bible open because we're just going to be going verse by verse today. The Lord, in response to these things, sees that Abram is feeling a bit anxious about the future. The Lord, though he has, uh, he himself has never feared anything, tells Abram what? Fear not. He sees the fear in Abram's heart even before Abram opens his mouth. And he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I want you to just, first of all, see the comfort here. The comfort in the Lord's voice. Fear not, Abram. Fear not. The Lord can see in Abram's heart, Abram's afraid. Even before Abram has opened his mouth, even before Abram has spoken anything to God, God already knows that the one that he loves is afraid. And Jesus taught us that, didn't he? Your father knows what you need before you ask him. The Lord knows what Abram needs before he asks him. And so God, in seeing Abram's fear, he doesn't rebuke Abram. Rather, in his love and in his mercy for Abram, he says, fear not. And then, not just an empty command, he gives him a reason not to be afraid. Look at verse 1. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. The Lord who loves Abram does not want Abram to live in this fearfulness of the world around him. And so he initiates this conversation. He comes to Abram in his, in his time of need. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your protector. And he goes on and says, your reward shall be very great. Now, Abram's not asking for a reward here, is he? But the shield is connected to this very great reward. We have, to, we have to see there's a connection here between God's promise of protection, of being a shield for Abram, and his promise to be uh, of, of this reward. In fact, the connection is so tight in, in, in the Hebrew that the NIV translation, for those of you who are reading the NIV, you're already a step ahead of us. The NIV translation says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. The Lord says he's the shield and the reward for Abram. In English class, we, we have to have our obligatory English lesson, as we often do here as we're studying literature, good, fine, inspired literature. We would say that the reward is in apposition to the shield. The word reward is a, a grammatical parallel. It's a rephrasing of the word shield. And this makes sense following last week's passage. Abram has just submitted himself in service to the Lord as his king through swearing an oath. And the Lord is confirming that con commitment. He, he's receiving Abram as his servant, as his, as his vassal. And he's saying, you're safe with me, Abram. You don't need to fear retribution from the king of Sodom. You don't have to fear attacks from those, 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 those horrible kings of the east. You have committed yourself to me. You have me. You have me. 
That's the, that's the understanding that's taking place here. The Lord is the great reward for Abram. And he's comforting Abram. He's telling that telling there, there's endless comfort and endless satisfaction to be found in having me as your king and your shield. David, King David, will come to this same conclusion. This is what he says in response to this reality in Psalm 18. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. He's responding to the Lord's promise to be his shield. And then he, look look at this in verse 2. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You see all those possessive statements? Mine, 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 mine. David has learned that the Lord is his. And he takes great comfort in that. And so should you. Amen. That's what the Lord wants Abram to see here. Abram, I'm your shield. I'm your reward. And there's a sense in which Abram understands it. He gets it. The Lord speaks to Abram in a way that is inviting Abram's friendship. And we see in verse 2 that Abram responds in like manner. He responds as if he's speaking to a a confidant. He tells the Lord what he has on his heart. Look at verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God. Now, just pause for a moment here. There's so many firsts in Genesis that we have to talk about. This is a first. We haven't seen this yet in Genesis. Look at the the type. Look at your scripture in verse 2. The, the, the way that your, your Bible has written this for you, do you see where Abram says, O oh Lord God, and you see G-O-D is all capitalized? Well, there are times in our Bibles when, that we've already learned about when, when the capital L-O-R-D is the way that the word Yahweh is, is written for us in English. But here, the word Lord is in normal type, but then G-O-D is capitalized. So what's happening, whenever you see that those all caps for G-O-D, that is being used to translate Yahweh. Because the word Lord is already being used here in this passage. So in Hebrew, Abram is saying Adonai Yahweh. Adonai means master or, or Lord, and Yahweh is God's covenant name. So master Yahweh is the, is, is the more literalistic translation. Lord God is the reverent and traditional translation. No one has yet called Yahweh by the title of master yet in Genesis. But that fits, again, what happened in chapter 13, or or 14 rather. Abram gave that tithe. He swore an oath to serve Yahweh as his master. The the Lord would be his, his king, his Lord over him. And so Abram is entered into this, this service to the Most High King, Yahweh. And so he speaks to God from that position of servitude. And he calls him Lord God. Since nobody's been in that position yet, this is the first time we're seeing it. So let's go on to what Abram says to God. Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring. And member of my household will be my heir. The complaint goes something along these lines, if I can rephrase it. So Abram's looking back to this, this, what has just occurred. He's saying, God, in response to this great victory that you gave me over these eastern kings, I realized you are my only help. And I have sworn to serve you as you as my king and me as your servant. But there's a problem. Back when you called me several years ago, when you called me out of the comfort of my family's land, you told me, you told me that you would make a great nation out of me, and I believed you, and I followed you. But I don't have a son. It's been years now, and I continue childless, 
And what's going to happen is I'm going to have to adopt one of, my, one of my foreigners, one of my servants, just so I can have someone to leave the stuff that I have too. Notice how in the English, our, our Bibles translate uh, when Abram says, I continue childless. That's our translation of a, of a Hebrew idiom. The idiom itself is literally, I walk stripped. I walk stripped. This is, this is shame language. In our culture today, it's a difficult trial to be married and unable to have children. And there, there's, there's a very real heartache in that. There's, there's real heartache, there's real pain in being childless when you want to have a kid. But for Abram in his culture, not only is there that, that, that pain, but there's also the additional burden of shame. There is shame in having no child. People around Abram would, would have looked at him and seen this, this man is you know, in his 90s and he has no child. There's, there's no one for him to leave his inheritance to. And the first thought in their minds would, would be, he must have done something wrong to deserve this. This must be a curse. And so Abram, is wherever he goes, he's, he's feeling the piercing of that shame that everyone around him thinks that he is accursed. And, and, and the way he describes it is he says, I walk stripped. It's like he's parading around as a man who has been ripped off. His clothes have been ripped off. And because of that feeling of shame, the first thing out of Abram's mouth when the Lord approaches him is not, where's the land that you promised me? It's not, where are the riches that you've promised me? But Lord God, where's the child that you promised me? Friends, just know that if, if, if you are childless, the Lord knows, and he cares for your affliction. I do not know why the Lord hasn't given you any children. I don't know why you have had to endure the miscarriages that you have. But just as the Lord cares for Abram in his childlessness here, and just as he welcomes this request from Abram, the Lord cares for you and he welcomes your prayers and your questioning. So seek the Lord as Abram is doing. And as the Lord is a comfort here to Abram, he will be a comfort to you. Secondly, I want you to see this, this other bit. Abram is bringing this complaint not just because he doesn't have a child, right? He's also bringing this complaint because he feels shame in that. And if you are feeling shame or embarrassment for something uncontrollable in your life, Abram has no control over this. If, if there's something that's been done to you by someone else or something physical that you endure that makes you feel ashamed, friend, just as Abram does here, talk to the Lord about it. Seek the Lord's nearness. Seek the Lord's comfort. Jesus Christ endured Great shame on the cross, and he knows your affliction. He despised the shame, the shame so, that, so that you would know his love for you. So seek him in his word, seek him in prayer, and take comfort in Christ. I told you this, this text was a conversation, and it is. Like any conversation, there's a back and forth here in chapter 15. God speaks, Abram responds. And then God speaks again here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. So here's the word of the Lord again coming to Abram. That is to say, God is speaking to Abram in this, in this powerful way, this, this, this creating way. And what is the Lord creating here in Abram? He's creating faith. And we're going to see that in a moment. But let's look at the words. Look at the rest of verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He's saying, no, Abram, you don't have to adopt one of your servants in order to have an heir. 
Rather, your very own son, which is to say the, someone from your own body, is the, is the, the literal language here, the child from your own body will, will be given to you, and he will be your heir. And then in verse 5, we get this connection. So, so far, this has just been a back and forth, a conversation between Abram and the Lord. But then, then we have to see this is getting big. In verse 5, we get a connection to everything else that has happened in Genesis up to this point. This, this shows us the way that Moses has written this for us is he's, he's building and building and building and building. And now we get to chapter 15, and he's just going to unpack it all for us. Look at verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars. You're able to number them. I should say you can't. And then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. So it's presumably nighttime now. We don't really know because this is, this is a vision of some sort. But regardless, Abram is able to see stars. And, 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 and we know he's not living in, in, in San Diego. He's not living in a modern city. This ancient night sky would be absolutely filled with stars. We can't count ours. There's no way he could come close. to cut kind of a square inch in his, in his vision. How many stars? Billions upon billions. The Lord says, that's how your offspring will be. But then, when the Lord says this, he uses, did you, did you, did you notice that? He uses the singular for offspring. And I'm just getting this straight out of Paul. Paul taught me how to read this. Paul recognizes this, right? The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, singular, who is Christ. Now, how does Paul know that? Aside from the fact that the Holy Spirit is writing it through Paul. How does, the, how does Paul know that? Well, in Genesis 3.15, when the Lord God curses the serpent, he simultaneously makes a promise to all of humanity. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, singular, and her offspring, singular, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, an offspring is coming who will destroy Satan and his works. And as we have been studying Genesis, we've been looking for this guy, haven't we? We've been looking for who this might be. In Genesis chapter 4, maybe it's Cain. He's the firstborn from the woman. No, he is actually an offspring of the serpent. And then, well, maybe it's Abel. No, Cain killed him. Maybe it's Seth. No, he died. It was Enoch. No, he's taken away. It was Noah. No, he dies too. They all did these great things. And they continued the line of the promise of this offspring. But none of them turned out to be the serpent crusher we're looking for. Now, we're still waiting on that offspring to come. And Paul knows, in Genesis 3.15, that's where that offspring was promised. And Abram knows here, that's when that offspring was promised. And that's who's coming. And the Lord is promising here that that offspring is coming from Abram. And this offspring shall be simultaneously singular and numerous as the stars in heaven. Now, there's something interesting about this promise for those of you who have been with us or those of you who know Genesis. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 13, when the Lord promised Abram this, this, this very same blessing, a very similar one, Genesis 13, 16, he said, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one could count the dust of the earth, which you can't, your offspring could also be counted. Now, what's interesting about that promise is that the dust of the earth, we all know from reading Genesis, is the stuff that Adam was made out of. Dust is the stuff that all of fleshly humanity is made out of. From dust I came, to dust I shall return. From dust you came, to dust, yes, you will return, even if you got the vaccine. That's who, that's who and what we are in Adam. We're going to die. You're going to die. Because you're made from dust. And that's still a great promise. For Abram's physical offspring to go from one son, Isaac, to an uncountable multitude. That's an enormous blessing. 
But here in Genesis 15, God updates his promise as he always does. He updates it or he rephrases that same promise. It's not only that Abram's offspring will be like the dust. There's another sense in which his offspring will be like the stars. Now, what's the difference between dust and stars? If you're Carl Sagan, there is no difference. It's all the same stuff from a purely materialistic worldview. But if you're operating under a biblical cosmology, then just as dust represents our origins and our end, the stars are symbolic of something else. The stars are heavenly. The stars are eternal, which is why when the Lord speaks to Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, he tells them this, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So here in Daniel, you have our sleeping in the dust, which is our earthly fleshly death, because we're made of dust. And then after the resurrection, the promise of our eternal state which is not like the dust of the earth, but like the stars of heaven, forever and ever eternal. So I believe, I believe what's happening here with the Lord's promise to Abram is he's hinting at, he's not declaring it, don't say Dustin said that God said, no, he's hinting, he's hinting at a, at a time when through this offspring, Death will be defeated, and those who are from this offspring will not be identified with dust anymore, but will rather be like the stars in their shining righteousness and immortality. That is why the Spirit, in writing through Moses, interjects this seemingly out-of-place bit of commentary in verse 6. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness remember 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 that what's happening here in genesis we are just listening or watching sort of a, a conversation and here's the narrator who jumps in to the conversation something that we haven't seen happen yet in genesis it's like a divine observation that is so important that the lord does not want this to be left to guesswork for us Mo- most of genesis is a narrative it's a story the lord is showing us things that we must learn rather than telling us. But this statement here, he tells us because it is so foundational, we cannot miss it. He's spoon feeding the point of this passage to us. Somehow, this promise of a multitude like the stars is coming from the offspring And that is somehow connected to Abram's faith, which is counted as righteousness. We won't know exactly how that works until you get to the New Testament. The mystery revealed in the the gospel that is given to the Gentiles. What we heard in, in Galatians and we heard also in Romans is that Paul loves verse 6. And he loves it so much that he might say, this is the point of chapter 15. He loves it so much that he might say, this is the climax of Abram's life. Paul loves this verse so much that he might say, this is the foundation of the gospel. This is the point of the scriptures. What's so important about verse 6? And he believed the Lord and he counted to him his righteousness. Well, think about what we know so far. Is Abram a righteous person? Let's let's play the devil's advocate and remember what he's done. Let us act as Abram's accuser for a moment. He's done some good stuff, right? Okay, he's done some good. He's obeyed God. He's trusted God. He's going to pass some weird tests. But does that compare to all of this, all of his sins? Let us examine his sins. Abram was a moon god worshiper when he lived in Mesopotamia. He's worshiping worshiping an idol, probably lots of idols. 
And Abram, in the worship of those idols, probably did unspeakable things in the temples of those idols. Abram, after his call to follow the Lord, sold his own wife into Pharaoh's harem in order to protect his own skin. He sold his wife to be the equivalent of a sex slave in Egypt. And he profited from that. And that's just what he's done. What will he do? In just one chapter from now, only one chapter from here, Abram will become impatient with the Lord's promise and the Lord's keeping of his promise. And he will take his wife's unbelieving advice and take her Egyptian servant, whom he probably got from Pharaoh when he sold his wife, he will take that Egyptian servant as a sort of second wife. And have her as his own and bear a child with her. And then later on, he's going to pimp out his wife again. And then because of of his bad example as a dad, his one and only son who finally does come is going to have learned that rotten lesson from Abram. And he's going to follow in his footsteps and he's going to pawn off his wife as well. And that's just what we know of Abram. He lived 175 years. Can you imagine the sins that you could do in 175 years? And yet the Lord, who has seen all of Abram's dark past, and he has seen all of the sins of Abram's future, declares here, Abram's righteous. And the accuser says to the Lord, and we who believe ourselves to be righteous would yell out, what are you thinking, God? What are you thinking? This man's not righteous. He's a sinner. Through and through. And the Lord just responds, Abram believed. Now, church, let me ask you, what is so powerful? What is so transforming about Abram's belief where he can go from being what is very clearly rotten to righteous saint, hero of the faith, approved by God, simply by faith? Well, I've said it before, but we need to see this again as we kind of unpack this. It is not the mere act of believing that is being counted to Abram as righteousness. Merely believing in the unseen does not make a person righteous. Believing that God exists does not save you. As James teaches us, even the demons believe that God is one and they tremble. What's important with Abram is that he's believing God's word to him. Faith comes by hearing. He's hearing God's promise of the coming offspring through whom the innumerable starry multitude will come. And Abram believes that's going to happen. That's going to happen. And faith in that promise is faith in the coming offspring. The person. Christ. The promised one who destroys the power of sin and death and brings blessings to the nations, to you and me. And that faith in the Christ who is to come is enough for the Lord to credit Christ's righteousness to Abram here. Abram's righteousness is not on account of Abram's goodness. His righteousness is not on account of of any sacrifice that he's made or will make. His righteousness is not on account of his descending from Shem or Noah or Seth or Adam. Abram's righteousness is not on account of who Abram is in and of himself. It's not on account of anything that he's done or will do or could imaginably do. Abram is counted righteous because of Christ and what Christ will accomplish. That's it. Salvation, righteousness before God, has always, where are we? Genesis 15. It's always, salvation has always been through Christ. Just as Christ's righteousness 
through faith is applied to you because of Christ's death for your sins. Christ's righteousness is obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, is what is transferred retrospectively to Abram even before it happens. One pastor puts it this way. Before the cross, they were saved on credit. After the cross, we've been saved on debit. Isn't that just perfect? That's Christian hip-hop for you. He's also a pastor. That's good news, isn't it? The question now that we have, that we've got to verse 6 is, okay, how does that work? Well, our divine author has drawn our eyes in close to verse 6. And it jumps out at us. And then he repeats it again and again and again throughout the rest of Scripture because it's so important. But the context of this is a conversation. It's just been this conversation that we've been reading has just been interrupted by this narrator's declaration that Abram is righteous because he believes God's promise. It's like God has said, salvation is by faith. And in the rest of this passage, I'm going to show you how that works. So if we were to see verse 6 as a parenthesis, a very important one. We'll put brackets. That sounds stronger. If, th- if this were a bracketed phrase, we would read our passage like this. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, look at the stars, so shall your offspring be. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Very next thing. That's, this is all one st- statement with that bracket in the middle. So the Lord in verse 5, just look at your text. Look at, look at verse 5. So the Lord in verse 5 has rephrased the promise of the offspring. And now it has something to do with stars and righteousness. And then in verse 7, the Lord is pointing Abram back to his call. And what I love about this is just how the Lord describes it. Now when we read it, when we read chapter 12 and, and the Lord's call of Abram, and Abram responds and he goes. But look how the Lord says it here in verse 7. I brought you. I brought you. He's saying to Abram, you felt like I called you and you responded? I brought you. I brought you out of from where you were to where you are. And I alone will finish what I started. You will possess this land. And so just as Abram asked a question in response to God's first statement, Abram has another question here. Look at verse 8. But he said, Oh Lord God, how am I to know? I believed you up to this point. How am I to know that I shall possess it? Now Abram has been told twice now that through his offspring he will possess this land that he's standing on. And now he's several years into following the Lord and he has neither a child nor any land and he's asking for something more formal, something more than the word that he has received. He's asking God, what he's, what he's saying here is, God, I want you to swear an oath. I want to know. And the way that we know in my culture is that you swear an oath, an oath of service or an oath of, of, that you will keep your promise. Now should, as we read this, Should God's word be enough for Abram? Yes, it should. But the relationship between Abram and the Lord just became more formal in chapter 14. When Abram gave that tithe, the Lord didn't need any of that stuff. But Abram did that. He he gave that tithe to Melchizedek, which was meant to go symbolically to the Lord, And when he did that, he was publicly swearing an oath for everyone to see, my service is to the Lord God as my king. I am his vassal. And normally in the ancient Near East, the confirmation of such an agreement, a political agreement between a vassal and his suzerain or his master would would happen through what is called a covenant cutting ritual. The two parties of an agreement like this would cut an animal in half, And then they would walk the trail of blood between the two halves of the animal. And they would walk that trail together. And that ritual would solemnify the relationship. 
It was a, a guarantee. It was a swearing of an oath. So walking through this, this valley of death was a promise that if either of these parties broke the agreement, the result would be that they would end up like the dead animals that they had just walked between. So when Abram says, how will I know that you're going to stick to your word? He's asking the Lord, Lord, I want you to go through one of these covenant cutting ceremonies with me because that's what we do in my culture. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. And so he condescends to Abram to go through this ritual. So he says, okay, look at verse 9. All right, bring me a heifer, three years old. Bring me a female goat, three years old. Bring me a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And we read this and go, okay, no big deal. But there's significance here with these animals. Normally, in, in the, the, the Hittite culture where they were practicing this covenant-cutting ritual, at least what we know from history, Normally, in one of these oaths, a donkey would be used or a, or a dog or some less valuable animal would be used because the symbolism here is in the death of the animal, not so much the value of the animal. But these animals that God asks for are significant, significant because they will later in the Bible be considered the acceptable offerings under the law that will come to Moses. Each of these animals will be acceptable substitutes for the atonement of sins. So Israelites, we read this, and we don't think much of it, but Israelites reading this would know, oh, those are all the sacrificial animals. And they would know that those of greater means would sacrifice rams and heifers, and those middle-class folks would sacrifice goats and, and, and the, the poorer people, the, those of lesser means, would sacrifice doves and pigeons. Thus, everyone who belongs to Israel is in picture here, from the greatest to the least. So rather than using common animals, the Lord is previewing something for the Israelites as they are reading this. He's symbolizing somehow, again, there's, there's hints of things that are to come. This is symbolic somehow that these animals will one day act as Israel's substitute. And this ceremony has something to do with that. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. And Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, laid them half, laid each half over against the other. So if you can imagine just animals cut in half, on either side, why don't we just make this the sanctuary, and you have dead animals on this side and dead animals on this side, and we're going to walk through the middle with all the blood and the smell and the guts and stuff. So Abram did this. He did not cut the birds in half. Why not? Because in the, uh, in the sacrificial system that we will later see in Exodus and Leviticus, the, the birds, the little, they're too little. They're not cut in half. They're just laid as sacrifices. So, When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's another sermon for another time. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and deep and great darkness fell upon him. Now, there is so much, this rich biblical symbolism here. Um, It's all true. This is all really happening, but there's a lot here that we could unpack. But here's, we're just going to look at a couple things. When was the last time we saw someone enter into a deep, deep sleep in Genesis. It was Adam, right? The deep sleep, the deep, deep sleep was of what the Lord used to bring the woman from Adam. And through that cutting of Adam's chest and the bringing out of the rib and the marriage covenant ceremony, the Lord made the two from the one and then he made them one again. And when will the next time be that we see a dreadful and great darkness? Well, that won't be until Mount Sinai, when the Lord makes a covenant with Israel and gives them the law and the promises to be their God. So there there are biblical clues here, repeats and flashes of scenes that we have seen before and that we will see again. And all of that points to the significance. Something big is happening here. Something major is happening here. 
Then the Lord said to Abram, verse 13, know for certain. He's saying, Abram, you wanted to know that this land will be yours? I'm going to tell you. Know for certain. And then he gives this prophecy, which is the word of God. Know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They'll be servants there. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. I'll bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Afterward, your people will come out with great possessions. As for you, you're going to die. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So for any of us with, with a Sunday school understanding of scriptures, we know this is talking about the Exodus. For those of you who don't, that's okay. This is talking about the Exodus, which is meant to tell the Israelites who are reading this that what they just endured, so the Israelites reading Genesis have already gone through the Exodus. And what they just endured as they're reading this, they're understanding, oh, that wasn't an accident? All of that, 400 years of slavery that our people endured, all of that was the will of God spoken right here to Abram? Abram knew this was coming? Why didn't anybody tell me that? This is, this is supposed to tell the Israelites this was all God's plan. And we read it, and we go, okay, I know how this story works. So God is going to put his people into slavery for 400 years. Okay, why? Because they've done something terrible? No. Because God isn't powerful enough to bring them out of Egypt before 400 years is up? No. Because, oh, okay, I see. I've been to uh, an association meeting. Uh, Maybe he wants to teach the Egyptians through the witness of the Israelites to hope in the Christ so that they can be made righteous too. No, that's not it. This is not an evangelism thing. Why must God's people suffer affliction in Egypt? Look at verse 16. Because they can't take the land yet. The land rightfully, going back to chapter 10, the land rightfully belongs to the Amorites. And those people cannot be dispossessed of the land yet because they haven't sinned enough yet. And it wouldn't be just to take their land yet. So what the Lord is telling Abram, this is, this is a rephrased version, but this is what's happening. What the Lord is telling Abram, he's, he's going to send his people to Egypt to preserve them. And there's good in there. You get to the end of Genesis, what, what, they, meant for, what uh, they meant for evil, God meant for good. He's going to preserve his people in Egypt. He's going to allow Egypt to oppress his own people, and they're going to suffer because of Egypt's sin. Then God is going to judge Egypt for enslaving and oppressing his chosen people. And he's going to He's going to save his people by his mighty redeeming hand. He's going to redeem his people out of Egypt. Then he's going to take his people, the Israelites, and he's going to use them as a weapon in his hand of judgment. Israel will be a tool of judgment against these Amorites whose sin is stacking up before the Lord. And so through that, blessing will come to Israel through the judgment of the Amorites. What are we seeing here? We are seeing both the grace of God toward Abraham, his undeserved salvation through faith, and at the same time, we're seeing the judgment of God towards sin, the wrath of God towards sin. Both of these are true of God. And if your theology doesn't have room for this, if you're thinking in your heart, well, it isn't really fair, this isn't really fair that God chose Abram, and he saved Abram out of his paganism, but he's allowing the Amorites to continue in theirs to amass this great Guilt that they will be destroyed for and banished from their own homeland. That's not fair. If that's not fair, if that troubles you, then what happens next is going to be very troubling for you. Because what we are about to see is that God is going to preview for us the scandalous way of the cross. We are about to see God show us how our blessing, our righteousness, will not come through our good works, but will come through the judgment of his offspring, the Son of God, the Word of God. That's not fair. But fair 
despair would put you and me in hell, wouldn't it? God isn't fair, but God is most certainly sovereign. And God is most definitely faithful to his promises and justice flows from his very own being. Look at verse 17. Let's get to the cross. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now remember how I told you that in covenant-making ceremonies, the vassal and the suzerain, the servant and the king, would walk between the animals together? That doesn't happen here. In this covenant ceremony, the Lord alone walks through the valley of the shadow of death while Abram sleeps. All he's done so far is cut up the animals and scare away the birds. Now he's sleeping and God's going to do the work. So you have this pillar of smoke and this pillar of fire. And that is, as we know from the rest of Scripture, the presence of God. It's the same illustration of who, who... who God is in the Exodus, who is with God's people in the Exodus as they go through the Red Sea. You have the, 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 the cloud and the fire. And then you say that that same smoke and fire is the presence of God in the tabernacle. It's the presence of God in the wilderness. It's the presence of God in the temple. This, and this darkness that has come down, this deep, dark darkness that has come down, that's what's later described in Isaiah as God's feet. It's that God, the, the darkness comes down under God's feet metaphor and the fire in smoke then as the darkness is comes down and now we see the the fire and smoke this is in a way like god's legs and there he goes walking between the dead animals that are cut in two that's what we see in verse 17 what is happening here (laughs) Well, God, by doing this alone, not with Abram, Abram's sleeping, God, by doing this alone, is saying, Abram, you are trusting in me alone to fulfill my promise. So I'm going to walk the way of the covenant alone. And I swear to you, if I'm not faithful to my promises to give you the offspring and to rescue your offspring from slavery in Egypt, and if I'm not faithful to my promise to give your offspring this land, then may I be accursed. May I alone be slain like these animals. And this, as verse 18 says, is God's covenant with Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This is God's oath. As Hebrews tells us, God is swearing by himself and against himself because there's no higher authority He will fulfill his promises. And he does fulfill his promises. God does. He brings the offspring to Abram late in Abram's estimation, but right on time in God's estimation. He brings the offspring to Abram, and then he brings the offspring of Abram, the Christ. And those who, through faith in the Christ, he brings them into the promise. That's God's promise here, and how does he fulfill it? Through death. In accordance with this very covenant that God swears to here in Genesis 15, God is slain in keeping with his promise. But it's not because he has failed to keep his promise, right? So he says, if if I fail to keep my promise, then this shall I be dead? It's not his failure to keep the promise that leads to the death of the Christ. Rather, the Christ who is the Lord, the offspring, the word of the Lord, who is swearing this oath, in order to ensure that the promise is fulfilled, the Christ becomes the curse that is signified by these dead animals. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So to ensure that the promise is fulfilled, the word of the Lord suffers death. Even the cursed death 
of a cross. And the one who called Abram, the one who came to Abram and comforted Abram in his fear, and the one who promised to be Abram's protector, and the one who made promises of blessing to Abram, became the one who is the sacrifice represented by those sacrificial animals torn in two. The one who said, may this curse be upon me if I fail to keep my promises, hangs accursed on the cross so that we may be forgiven for our sins, so that we may be made righteous through faith in him, so that we may be like the innumerable multiple stars who for eternity dwell with God and shine in his holiness. The word of the Lord died not because he had failed to keep the promise. Rather, he died so that the promise could be kept. So do you see how this is the most important conversation in the history of the world? Because here in this conversation, the hope of the Christ, the hope of the gospel 